Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, I believe that we are streaming now and that we are recording now, and we are about to begin uh, a, a unique section in Moren Nevuchim. We are going to start chapter 69 of the first section of the Mora, and it's really, if we look at the last seven chapters of Moreh Nevuchim, chapters 69 through 76, which we hope to cover in the next several weeks, we will see that this is a unique um, topic that the Rambam wishes to approach now. Now that he's given us all of his introduction about his conception of God using the Aristotelian Greek model of a God who is non-corporeal and who is transcendent and who uh, can only be defined in terms of negative attributes and no positive attributes. Now the Rambam is going to take on a theological opponent for the last seven chapters of Morena Vuchim. These opponents, the Rambam assumes we know who they are already. And that creates a little bit of difficulty because remember the Rambam had written this book for a student of his, uh, whom he believed was um, a little bit confused and needed some guidance to understand that philosophy and Judaism were completely reconcilable. And in the midst of this, um, uh, of this confusion, perhaps what the Rambam perceived is that this young man who was his disciple was perceiving that there are certain members of the philosophical and religious community who have tried to uh, bend philosophy or religion into a pretzel in order to make them all fit together. And this is what the Rambam wishes to address. The Rambam wants to uh, dispel the, um, the rumor that in order for philosophy and religion to be reconciled, you have to compromise on either philosophy or religion. The Rambam feels that philosophy, at least the correct parts of philosophy, act as the uh, explanations, the deeper explanations of what Judaism has to present to the world uh, in terms of the way he presented the book is to, in terms of Ma'asevereshit, an explanation of the cosmology of the world and how the world is made up the way that God created it, and Ma'asei Merkava, the metaphysics or the metaphysical realm of the world, God and his celestial um, entourage. And there is no need to either change what Judaism has to say, nor is there a need to change what philosophy correctly has to say. Now, I use the term correctly because we will see later on in the second section of Moreh Nevuchim, where the Rambam will have to concede that there are certain parts of philosophy that are incorrect, those parts which are in direct conflict with Judaism. But in, as a general rule, he feels that everything is reconcilable. And that's what makes him uh, choose his theological opponents 
as the Kalamists, or the, what he will call the Mutakalim or the Mutakalimun. Um, this term is something that um, we're going to see an essay in just a moment that will try and explain this for us. If you're enrolled in this course, uh, you will be able to download a PDF which has a few pages from a book called um, Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed, a Philosophical Guide, and it's written by Professor Alfred, Alfred L. Ivry. I highly recommend it. I think it is done very well, and I use it as a reference guide. Um, on pages, we have copied for you pages 82 to 85, which is an analysis of chapters 69 to 76 in the Morin of Uchim. And I just want to read a few lines, uh, actually about a little bit over a page from that work to help us get our bearings. So I'm now going to share that on the screen for us. And I want us to take a look at it for just a moment. Okay. So as you can see on the top, this is Alfred Ivry's Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed, a Philosophical Guide, starting with page 82. And he writes as follows. I, I apologize if the, if the lines are a little bit crooked. In this section of the guide, Maimonides contrasts two visions of reality. One is an essentially Aristotelian natural philosophy, the other a theologically prescribed atomism, now, as we'll see, what he means by atomism, and I encourage you to, um, to uh, research what atomism is, the ancient philosophy of, of atomism as the Greeks presented it, was that the world is comprised of very, very tiny um, pieces of matter with a void in between those pieces. And that's not that distant from what the, the, what the reality is described by scientists today, that the world is made up of atoms. But when we talk about atomism in the, in the way that the Rambam is making reference to it, uh, he is, uh, he is um, uh, looking at a worldview that will be presented by Islamists that says that not only is the world comprised of tiny little components of physical mass, but time is comprised of tiny little components. And if you break up the world in tiny, tiny components, and you say that every second that elapses is a new frame of reality that is disconnected from the previous frame, almost like a movie. Instead of a movie being actually uh, a reality that is analog and that goes continuously from point from the beginning until the end, it is actually broken down into separate little frames. Uh, and my son, who's in computer programming, uh, was uh, that I was studying this with tells me that when you do computer animation, it's the same thing, is that you break down everything into frames, and because you show the frames can continue contiguously one after the other very, very rapidly, it looks like you have animation, but in reality, it's just a change of, of slight pix a slight change in pixelation on the screen, but each frame is completely separate from the other. That is what the atomists believe in the Rambam's time. Now, as you can imagine, if that is so, it creates a lot of issues with what existence really means. Is it, the person that is speaking to you at this very moment, am I the same person that spoke to you a moment ago? Or am I a new version, a completely different person from the person that spoke to you just five seconds ago? If everything is constantly being recreated and renewed, then 
there is a disconnect between the past, the present, and the future in such a way that the future becomes completely unpredictable and that anything could potentially happen. And we'll see that in just a moment. Maimonides sides with the philosophical view and offers a brief description of the basic tenets of its physics and metaphysics. He reserves his doubts about the validity of Aristotelian metaphysics for later, meaning in the second, uh, second part of Morenavuchim, being concerned to settle his quarrels with, the theolo with this theological position first. In other words, first I'm going to take on the Kalamists, and I'll assume that Aristotelian philosophy is 100% correct. And once I've taken care of the Kalamists at the end of, of uh, part one of Morenavuchim, I will then approach uh, my, I will grind my axe with the Aristotelians as well. Now, the theologians of Islam were proficient in Im, ilm al-kalam, the science of kalam. Kalam is a term that literally means speech or language. Because, uh, for example, um, in Arabic, I say, anna atakalam, I am speaking, anta tatakalam, you speak, right? So kalam, kalam is the shoresh, is the root for just speech, for, like, for dibur, right? Or language, the paradigm of which was the speech of God in the Quran. So the kalamists are religious philosophers, people who very much are devoutly committed to the text of the Quran but also wish to explain the words of the Quran using philosophical principles. The mutakalimun were those men who wished to rationalize that speech, verbalize a worldview that would support their desire to understand God and his relation to the world in logical terms. Their point of departure based on the Quran was that he is the creator of the world, an omnipotent, omniscient, and just being whose nature is beyond human comprehension. Now, when you read that, it sounds like we're kindred spirits, right? What possible problem could the Rambam have with a Kalamist who believes the same thing that Judaism believes? God is the creator, he's omnipotent, omniscient, and just, and also beyond comprehension. It seems like the Rambam has been saying that all along. The Mutakalimun believed that God, in his compassion for humanity, gave us the illusion of perceiving a natural body that has permanent or at least enduring properties. Mostly, they saw him as recreating the world each instant through momentary combinations of atoms and accidents. Nothing has substantive weight of its own. And that last sentence is very weighty because if nothing has substantive weight, then really what is the role of the human being who is constantly being recreated and it has no real control over reality since I'm not the same person that I was a second ago? Now, before we go on, I just want to point out that this type of theology may sound very familiar to someone who has studied Judaism, or perhaps someone who went to Shacharis this morning and recited the blessings of the Kriyat Shema and said that we appreciate God because he is Hamechadesh Bituvo Bechol Yom Tamid that God renews constantly the act of creation. And the Rambam is theologically opposed to a literal reading of that sentence that I just recited to you from the davening. When we get to chapter 71 and we go into this idea of atomism and that everything is constantly being recreated, I would like to show you some classical conventional sources 
that very much seem to be siding with the Kalamists over the Rambam. And we'll get to that shortly. Let's just finish reading this short introduction. In this manner, the Mutakalimun gave voice to a deep sensibility. And by the way, in Hebrew, you may, know, you may find them known as the Midabrim, because that's literally what it means, the speakers, right? In this manner, the Mutakalimun gave voice to a deep sensibility in Islam that echoed the Quran's insistence on God's unilateral sovereignty in the world, not to be challenged by any natural law or normative physical intermediaries. In other words, it's a noble objective that the Mutakalimun have, which is to give God absolute omnipotence and that God is in absolute control. There is no such thing as a natural order that God basically set into motion nor does anyone have their hands on the driving uh, on the on the on the driver's uh, wheel except for god the mutakalimun saw the scientific tradition to which the philosophers subscribed even though it came to accommodate traditional religious beliefs in many instances as positing an autonomous or semi-autonomous natural world in their animus against philosophy the mutakalimun developed arguments voiced earlier by john philoponus and other Christian thinkers about Aristotle's scientific treatises becoming sophisticated advocates of their position. So essentially, the Mutakalimun are not the first to advance this hitnagdut or this opposition to Aristotelianism. Um, this, we find this in earlier Christian thinkers as well, but the Rambam is most familiar with his own milieu of philosophy, which is the Islamic school of philosophy. The philosophers, on the other hand, viewed the Mutakalimun as dogmatic and pseudo-rational thinkers, threatening the legitimacy of scientific inquiry in Islam. Now, that's a very important statement because you have the same thing happening in the 20th and 21st century. You have the creationists who basically say that uh, there is a God. We do believe that's our starting point, but God is the, the God of creation is reconcilable with the God of evolution and the God of science. And a true scientist looks at the creationist and says, well, you're an apologist. You're just trying to, you know, to fit something straight and twist it into a pretzel to make it fit. And that's been the, that was the argument in the 11th and 12th centuries. And it's the argument, arguments sometimes repeat themselves in the world, in, in world history, um, especially in the history of ideas. So he writes that Al-Farabi, Avicenna, and Averroes all oppose the Mutakalimun. Al-Farabi and Avicenna are the Rambam's teachers. Averroes is a contemporary of the Rambam in the 12th century. They all oppose the Mutakalimun. Averroes trying valiantly to rebut Al-Ghazali's incoherence of the philosophers in his incoherence of the incoherence. Now, so there's these disputations that are taking place among Islamic thinkers where you have a, a school of Muslim philosophers who are devoted to Aristotelianism, even when it cannot be reconciled with the Quran. And then you have people like Al-Ghazali who will eventually prevail, who basically call people like Al-Farabi, Avicenna, and Averroes uh, um, uh, heretics. They are, um, they are uh, kufr. They are deniers of the faith, they are deniers of Islam, they are deniers of the Quran, and therefore they cannot be accepted. Historically, we know that Al-Ghazali, who lives in the 11th century, 
eventually prevails in his argument and wins the battle of ideas in the Islamic world, which is why Islam does not continue in its scientific um, discovery in the way that it did before the before the 12th century. Okay, so this is a very important historical point for the for the Islamic world as much as it is for the Jewish world of Maimonides. Maimonides is thus following a venerable philosophical tradition in challenging the views and methodology of the Mutakalimun. Nor is he favorably disposed to earlier Jewish writers like Sajigon, who compromised their attempts at philosophizing with Kalam-style arguments. Rambam, as we'll see later on, is somewhat critical of Rabbi Sajia because he feels that Rabbi Sajia is the same kind of apologist as the Mutakalimun were. And the Rambam does not view himself as an apologist. He basically says that anytime you find an inconsistency between true, correct philosophy and Judaism, it's that you're, you're just not reading the psukim correctly, or you're not understanding Chazal correctly. But there's no kind of bending or twisting or anything like that in the Rambam's view. In the guide, however, Maimonides ignores his Jewish predecessors and attacks the Muslim adherents of Kalam, though without mentioning any by name. His description of their tenets and arguments is a pastiche drawn from various sources, an attempt to get at what he believes is the heart of their arguments, describe the major schools of Kalam thought, and persuade the reader of the sophistic nature of their reasoning. Maimonides is engaged in a polemic against Kalam teachings, and like all polemicists, he may be simplifying and distorting the complex and qualified positions of his adversaries. As we'll see later on, the Rambam himself acknowledges that there are actually two major schools within the Kalamists which are at odds with each other, the Asherites and the Mutazilites, which we're not going to discuss today. But it's important to know that they varied greatly, and the Rambam's main disputant is really the Asherites over the Mutazilites. The Mutazilites are more Aristotelian in their thinking. The Asherites are the one who are the hardcore atomists. The picture of Kalam that emerges is thus not representative of the rich diversity of views held by the Mutakalimun, but rather reflects Maimonides' own projection of their key premises arranged systematically as is his practice. Now, does that mean that we should um, feel that there's a, a diminution of quality of this literature because of what Professor Ivory has said? No, because we use this as a template. What the Rambam is essentially doing is a template of disputation that is very helpful for us even in the modern era. This is my commentary, right? In other words, what the Rambam is essentially engaged in is something that we too should be engaged in anytime we, we encounter an oversimplified or apologetic explanation of science uh, in our time based upon our need to reconcile science with Judaism. So for someone, you know, just for someone who wishes to um, try to create that reconciliation, we have to make sure that the reconciliation is not an oversimplification, nor is it uh, ignoring basic scientific facts in order to make it fit in with the model of creation, let's say, as pre presented in the Torah. And the Rambam feels that this exercise of dispelling the errors of the Kalamists is helping us understand our fealty or it's helping us be more faithful to truth because the Kalamists 
are doing what I'm trying to do, but in the course of doing that, they're creating a lot of damage, is essentially what the Rambam is saying. Uh, um, I'm just going to skip a little bit. Um, Maimonides feels most challenged, and we're going to get into this in chapter 71, by what he calls the 10th premise of the Mutakalimun, calling it the main proposition of the science of Kalam. It is the affirmation that whatever may be imagined may, uh, may possibly occur, occur short of logically absurd statements. And I'm just going to explain the rest of what Professor Ivory writes outside, and you're welcome to download. And if you are looking for a copy of this, it's a three and a half page introduction, please email me or IM me on Facebook and I'll be happy to send you the full PDF. Essentially, what the Kalamists say is that anything can happen in the future. The future is completely unknown because any patterns that were formed from the past do not necessarily project onto the future what will happen since everything is a constant recreation from ex nihilo, from nothing to something. What existed five minutes ago no longer exists, and this is a totally new creation. And therefore, anything that is imaginable is possible for the future. The Rambam categorically rejects that and says that the imagination faculty in the mind is a faulty faculty, and a person has to utilize his intellect. And if, if we cannot process properly the patterns and rules of physics that we see in the world around us, if we cannot project from the and extrapolate from those rules what will be in the future, then the intellect really has no has a very diminished function in our ability to understand and make sense of the world that's all around us. Because if anything can happen and miracles are going to be happening constantly in the future, then uh, of what purpose uh, is it to try and make sense of the world around us if it could change at any moment? And that's really the, uh, one of the big problems that the Rambam has with the Kalamists, is that there, it, there's a certain counter-intellectualism contained within that philosophy, and it plays up the, the benefits of having a very vivid and creative imagination, because anything that your imagination is capable of, of conjuring is something that could happen just around the corner. It could happen in five seconds from now. You could, whatever fantastical imaginings you could have could come into reality because anything is possible. And the Rambam categorically rejects that. Now, um, there's a lot more that, that you can be said about the, uh, the, the Mutakalimun and their theory of, of epistemology or of how to study the human mind and how, how to make sense of the world around us, but I'll let you, uh, I'll let you take a look at that on, on your own. What I would like to get into is to, even though we have only a few minutes left for today, I would like us to at least get started on chapter 69, because chapter 69 is not going to deal with the problem of atomism for the Rambam, but rather it's going to deal with um, another issue that the Rambam has a bone of contention with the Mutakalimun, which is the fact that they identify God as the creator, which the Rambam does as well, but the reason why they call him the creator is because they feel that the philosophical description of God, which is not creator, but rather either first cause or first mover, is in error. And this is how we're going to start uh, chapter 69 on page 166 in the Pines edition. The philosophers, as you know, 
designate God, may he be exalted as the first cause and the first ground, or what we might call the prime cause and the prime mover, as I think is probably more familiar with students of Aristotelian philosophy. Those are the two terms that are usually thrown around as the prime cause and the prime mover, that God is the, uh, that's the way God is known as in Aristotelianism. On the other hand, those who are generally known as mutakalimun avoid these designations very deliberately and designate him as the creator or the maker and think there is that there is a great difference between our saying cause and ground and our saying maker. For they say that if we say that he is a cause, the existence of that which is caused follows necessarily, and this leads to the doctrine of the eternity of the world and of the world necessarily following from God. And basically the Kalamists argue two things. Number one, if you believe that God is the ultimate cause of everything, then the cause necessarily gives rise to that which comes from the cause. And therefore, God doesn't have a choice but to create, and that takes some level of volitional power from God. And number two, it means that the universe has eternally existed because any because God cannot exist in potential. If God has an attribute of being a creator, then that which emanates from God must have always been, because it would be wrong to say that God exists in potential. So for example, just to just to give an illustration, we're not going to go through the whole text today, but the Rambam sort of in representing what the Kalamists argue is, if you have a guy named Bob the Builder, and Bob the Builder has the potential to build a house, but he has not yet built the house, so he is not yet a builder. He only becomes a builder when he builds the house. But before he builds a house, he's just Bob. He's a builder potentially, but he's not a builder in actuality. If God is a creator and, uh, and then, and God has not yet created because he's at a certain point in time before creation, then God is only the potential creator and he's not the actual creator. This is philosophically problematic, says the Rambam in representing the Kalam position because uh, if we know that God has no potentiality, that's, that's been established in the last chapter, that God is always active and nothing about God is, exists in potentiality, but everything about God exists in actuality, then uh, there can be no scenario where God is the cause or responsible for all of creation, but has not yet brought creation into existence. And that's the problem that the Kalamists have by, call, by calling God the first or prime cause. Because by calling God a cause, you must then acknowledge that everything has always existed just as God has always existed. And in order to dispel that uh, argument, the Rambam makes two points. His first point is something that he has already discussed uh, from chapter, ch chapters 57 and 65 in Moren Avuchim. And that is a concept from Ibn Sino or Avicenna, one of, his, one of his philosophical teachers. And that is that there is a difference between essence and existence. Um, it's a fine point and you have it in the screen in front of you. We've sent it out as part of the handout for today's course. The difference between essence and existence, according to Ibn Sina, and this is a philosophical point, which is very, very subtle 
and is not largely accepted in our world of thought today. So it's a little bit hard to get our, our minds around it. But there's a difference between actual existence and quiddity, which is the way Pines had translated it, or essence. Something may be essential or has quiddity, which means it exists, but it doesn't yet have physical existence. And so just to give you, this is from a dictionary entry from the Stanford University uh, Encyclopedia. The, um, uh, he writes as follows. Uh, analysis of being reveals two meanings of existence. The first affirms or establishes the existence of something. The second expresses without affirming its existence, the reality by virtue of which something is what it is, namely its essence. The first is what Ibn Sina calls the existence related to the fact that something is established, al-wujud al-itbati, and the second identifies the particular or proper existence of the thing. As regards the latter, one is either not required to know whether the thing is or is not existent, or else one ignores the entire question. In the first sense, then, the existent thing stands for what is established or realized, and affirms that something exists. In the second sense, which is expressed by proper existence, what is referred to is the reality, nature, or essence, or according to Avicenna's technical terminology, quiddity or thingness of the thing. Here, no existential judgment is implied. One does not know if the thing exists. What is expressed is an intentional note, independent of its existence, which necessarily accompanies it. So basically, the Rambam takes the same approach from the from the notebook of, of Avicenna and says that, yes, while God is the ultimate cause of all of reality, reality has always existed within God, even before it came into creation, right? Even before it came into physical existence. So creation has always existed, even before it came into physical existence. And that sort of is a response to the Kalamists who, who don't uh, understand how God could be the cause of something that doesn't yet exist if God is always active and nothing is potential about God. The second point that the Rambam wishes to argue as to why it is important to embrace the philosophical uh, uh, appellation of God as the prime cause is because the word cause as it pertains to God is most descriptive of God's relationship with the entire world or all of existence. And that is based upon the fact that in Aristotelian uh, philosophy, there are four causes. And because we're sort of out of time, I'm going to have to leave this uh, until next week. And we'll, we'll finish off the chapter. We'll explain the four causes in Aristotelianism. And we'll demonstrate, uh, using the Rambam's text, how God fits into three out of four of the causes of all of existence. And therefore, according to the Rambam, he agrees that it is the most accurate description of God to call him not creator, but to call him the prime cause or the first cause. It doesn't mean that the Rambam rejects the fact that God is the creator, but he wishes to have this disputation with the Mutakalimun to show that he, you can live with, as a believer in creation, you can still live with God as being a prime cause. And indeed, it's actually probably even better a better description of God than calling God the creator. I think this is where we're going to hold it for today. 
And so I'm going to uh, stop the share. And uh, wish you all a good day. And Be'ezrat Hashem, we will see you next week. Take care now, everybody.